mer Qu'on voit danser Le long du golfe clair in what is certainly one of the biggest and perhaps most brazen thefts in history, an unidentified man entered the Carlton International Hotel in Cannes on the Sunday afternoon of July the 28th, 2013. A jewellery exhibition was taking place in the foyer of the illustrious lodgings, and in less than a minute he walked out and into the broad daylight of the Croisette with a collection of diamonds said to be worth in the region of $136 million. Now, preposterous as it may sound, that was not the first such heist in Cannes last year. It was the third. At the height of the festival in May, $1.4 million worth of gems was stolen from a Swiss jeweller. And then, barely a week later, after all the filmmakers had left town, a diamond necklace worth $2.6 million was stolen. Diamonds, robberies, Cannes. Wherever did they get that idea? Have you ever seen any place in the world more beautiful? Just look at the colours of the sea down there in the sky and those little pink and green buildings on the hill. Think of all those roofs you could climb over. Who did you call me? Roby. John Roby, one of the world's cleverest jewel thieves known as the cat. The history of the heist movie is almost as old as cinema itself. You can trace it back to what is considered to be the first American fiction film, Edwin S. Porter's The Great Train Robbery from 1903. But it wasn't until after World War II that the genre presented its first classics. Robert Siedmack's adaptation and expansion of Ernest Hemingway's short story, The Killers. John Huston's masterful, The Asphalt Jungle, that was taken from a novel by W. Orr Burnett. And then Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, which sprung from the pages of Lionel White's novella, Clean Break. By then, the French were turning at their own lean, mean robbing machines with Touché pas au Grisby, Rufifi, Bob Le Flambeur, and Class Touzerisk. Perhaps those French movies were too tough for Hollywood to take, because in the coming years, the studios decided to soften the hard-hitting genre into the caper picture, and soon, this new subgenre was swanning around Europe with David Niven in The Pink Panther, or cozying up to Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn in Charade, or watching Peter O'Toole teach Audrey Hepburn how to steal a million. In quick succession, we had Gambit, Arabesque, Masquerade, and The Thomas Crown Affair, before the decade rounded out with the Italian job. Hang on a minute, lads. I've got a great idea. Uh, uh. After that, you have a mixture of the tough with Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, and the light with Peter Yates's The Hot Rock. The 1980s gave the extremes of Michael Mann's hard-hitting thief. I am the last guy in the world that you want to fuck with. And Charlie Crichton's hilarious A Fish Called Wanda. Don't call me stupid. Into the 90s, we were introduced to this lot. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. Before Michael Mann returned with his sprawling saga, Heat. Guy told me one time, don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner. In that same year, we got to know the usual suspects. And odd as it may sound, I believe it belongs halfway between the heist picture and the caper picture. That is not to say you feel that way when you're first watching it. On an initial viewing, the film is as fascinating, sparkling, deceptive, and as tough as a diamond. 
The Oscar-winning script slides everything so quickly off its slick surface that any snags in the plot go unnoticed. Before you can question the blizzard of twists and turns, they have spun back upon themselves to dazzle you again with a new complication. And on and on and on they go, until the ending, where we are delivered one of the greatest twists in cinema. Convince me and tell me every you know, last back when I was in that barbershop quartet in Skokie, Illinois. Where's your head, Agent Kuyan? What we need to do is think. Think back. I'm sure you've heard many tall tales. Bricks Marlin. This isn't right. I just want to hear every story. last detail. It's all there. And I'm telling it straight, I swear. As the final images unfurl, everything we have seen and heard for the last 110 minutes is reviewed, revised, and given new meaning. The toughness fades away and is replaced by something that glistens and makes you smile at the sheer ingenuity of it all. And for me, that places it within the caper genre. Because by then, you realize that the real victim of the heist is you. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, he's gone. Now, for sake of convenience, we'll agree that the plot of The Usual Suspects is too intricate to try and summarize. So permit me to focus instead on the way it is told. It's non-linear in structure, going back and forth between the past and the present, as a detective Kuyan interrogates Verbal Kint about a robbery and ensuing gun battle that appears to have been orchestrated by one Dean Keaton, a hardened gangster whom Kuyan has been trying to catch for several years. Now, before I go any further, one thing I want to point out is that there are several guidelines screenwriters are supposed to follow. And while that is certainly helpful when writing a script, those rules are not all that helpful when you're watching a movie. Why? Because if every film were to adhere to those rules, every film would be the same. What I'm saying is that every great screenplay breaks at least one of those rules. And one of the rules that the usual suspect screenwriter, Christopher McQuarrie, broke was using the same initial, the letter K, for many of the principal characters. Which may be fine in real life, but this is film, and after a while it can be confusing. Did he say Kuyan or Kobayashi? Did he mean Keaton or Kaiser Soze? So who is this guy, Christopher McQuarrie? Christopher McQuarrie was born and raised in Princeton Junction, New Jersey, where he attended high school with Brian Singer and Ethan Hawke, and later worked in a detective agency, which to me seems as straight a route to a Hollywood career as any. The usual suspects is anything but straight. The story is so convoluted, Macquarie needed to anchor it by using the aptly named Verbal Kint to narrate it. With Verbal as our guide, he helps make sense of the whole thing for us. And in that simple stroke, Macquarie exploits the audience's almost built-in nature to believe what they are told. We place our trust in our narrator because our narrator is the repository of truth, right? Yet, however clever the trick Macquarie pulled off in writing is, it is quite another for director Brian Singer to achieve in bringing the thriller to the screen. It's called misdirection, and it entails keeping the revealing detail on the screen while always showing the audience something else that will distract them. So Singer and his director of photography, Newton Thomas Siegel, deployed a clever technique where the camera is slowly but constantly dollying and zooming in from wide shots to close-ups, adding a dynamism that already exists in the dialogue, 
but also neatly distracts you from what you really should be looking at. One of the best scenes in the film comes quite early on, when Verbal is recalling how all the suspects came to meet for the first time. The sequence begins with a close-up of Verbal's feet as he limps down the corridor into the lineup room. We then cut to a view from inside the witness room so that we are in darkness, looking through the window as the suspects take their positions and deliver the line they've been asked to say. All right, you all know the drill. When your number is called, step forward and repeat the phrase you've been given. Understand? Number one, step forward. Hand me the keys, you fucking cocksucker. Now, a story told in flashback is a story within a story. And the way Singer and Siegel construct this particular shot, we see two characters silhouetted in the witness room and then we see the suspects beyond the window in the lineup room. What Singer and Siegel have given us is a picture within a picture, a frame within a frame. And as Verbal says, It was bullshit. The whole rap was a setup. You don't put guys like that into a room together. Moreover, when we are looking into the lineup room from the witness room, what we are seeing is in effect a movie screen, which means we're looking at a bunch of actors auditioning for their part in a movie to which they think they know the script, but obviously they've no clue. Which brings me to what I think The Usual Suspects is really about. It's not about a heist. It's not about Kaiser Soze. It's not about the devil. It's about storytelling. Macquarie takes the materials around him, materials that no matter how desperate they are, he pulls them together to create something new. It's magic. He has the ability to convince us that what we're watching is real. And then the second we realize that we've been conned, he's gone.